0: I'm reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive (coughs) sorrow so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Thanks, Valerie. Good
1: morning. Well, it's not a surprise to you when I tell you that our culture is a mess morally, right? I mean, uh, all you have to do is turn on a sitcom, look on the Internet. Uh, There's just a lot of moral garbage out there, and our culture seems to be on this downward slide morally, there's this loss of any sense of absolutes, of right and wrong. where We seem to be controlled by relativism. Relativism is this idea that, well, you may have your morals, but don't impose them on me because I get to determine my own morals. It's all relative. So we've lost a sense of absolutes, of right and wrong. It creates an increasing sense in our culture of brokenness, of shame, of guilt that is permeating our society with so many broken lives because sin always brings spiritual death it just does that's how god created the universe to run and so there's so much brokenness in our culture sin brings pleasure for a time but in the end it brings death as romans says 623 the wages of sin is death spiritual death, frustration, brokenness. And if we violate what God says we're created for in righteousness and goodness, then we experience that death. That's the reality of our culture. Unfortunately, we, as the community of Jesus Christ, touch on that culture and that culture affects us. And so Many of us in the church struggle with a lot of those moral issues as well. We're broken people. We're needy. We need forgiveness constantly. And it it raises the question for us about what kind of community we should be as the people of God. Should we be the bastion of morality? (laughs) A place where righteousness really matters. Where sin is taken seriously where people who choose to say, I am a believer and yet chooses to live an immoral lifestyle is confronted, that kind of person. They're confronted in the community of Jesus Christ because that's not okay. Not that we're not all struggling with sin and seeking to grow and become more Christ-like. We're all struggling with sin. That's part of our fallenness here. But, But those who blatantly say, I'm a believer, but I'm going to do whatever I want regardless of what the Bible says or what God says. We confront. We deal with that because we take sin seriously. Is that what the church is meant to be? Or is the church meant to be a place where love and forgiveness permeates where grace is taught? Where sinners can come in their struggle and find acceptance, find love, find encouragement because we're all in this boat walking together and where anyone is welcome, where we experience forgiveness in our relationships with one another. Is that what the church is supposed to be? Which is it? Well, obviously the answer is simple. It's both, right? Right? We are to be a place where sin is taken seriously, but we are to be a place where people experience the fullness of grace and forgiveness in their struggle. But this creates a real tension for us, doesn't it? Because we, we're not good at confronting sin and, and, and forgiving sin both. We tend toward one or the other, and the spirit of our age, of course, and we this influences us in the church is that um, don't tell me what to do. Don't confront me. Don't involve yourself in someone else's life. Rather, live your own life the way you want to and, you know, I'll just just live my life and try to be a godly person and hope it kind of rubs off. Uh, You know, we struggle with finding this balance. So how should we as a church community live? How do we find a good balance that... Where we deal with blatant sin in our midst, but we also love and welcome a repentant sinner in their struggle. How do we find that balance? What should it look like? Well, our passage today that Val just read, I think, gives us a good picture of the balance as Paul is communicating with the church in Corinth and helping them understand what they've gone through with one of their own and how they've dealt with them, and what he calls them to now to a deeper kind of grace and forgiveness. And in this passage, I think we'll learn some principles that will help us in this area, but it will also especially, I think, we'll understand more deeply, hopefully, as we go through it, the power of forgiveness and how important it is in our relationships with one another. Pray with me, if you would. Lord what an amazing God you are holy, righteous, pure and you tell us to be holy as you are holy and yet we're fallen and we struggle and yet you accept us and forgive us through the cross of Jesus Christ as we admit our sin and experience repentance leading to forgiveness. But Lord we want to be a community that loves well that responds as you respond to us that takes sin seriously but also takes grace and forgiveness seriously so as we look at this passage together lord speak to us by your spirit help us become the community you've called us to be a community of redemption we pray in jesus name amen now verse five and six of chapter two help us understand when church intervention works, when church intervention works. Verse 5 says, if any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order to not say too much to all of you. Paul reminds them of this one particular person that had been caught in sin and had been unrepentant. And his sin had clearly done harm to the whole church. He says he's brought sorrow, grief, pain to all of you. The whole church has been affected by this one person's sin. That's because we're interconnected. We're the body of Christ and we impact one another. So it appears that the church went through what many call a church discipline process. What we here at Cole call a church intervention process process. In fact, we have a policy paper on the back wall if you want to know more about our understanding biblically of how to approach someone who's blatantly calling themselves a believer but they're continuing to walk blatantly in sin. We have a process we go through and it's based on Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. There it says, if a brother or sister is caught in sin, that you go to them one-on-one and confront them about it. If they respond, you've won your brother. But if they don't respond, then you take someone with you and you go two-on-one to the person. If they refuse to respond to the two of you, then it says to tell it to the church in a public situation, a public forum, so that they will have to deal with that shame and guilt and all that goes with that. And it says again, if they respond to that, you've won your brother, but if not, then you treat them as a tax-gatherer sinner. In other words, as an unbeliever, they're not part of the church fellowship anymore because they're choosing to walk in disobedience. But I want to make very clear that this process which Jesus gives us is not for those of us who are struggling in an area of sin, but we really want to change. We admit we struggle. We admit our sin, and we want to become more like Jesus, but we keep failing. It's only for those who blatantly flaunt their sin and refuse to repent. So what was this particular man's sin that, that Paul's addressing here? Well, we don't know. He doesn't say specifically what it is. Commentators speculate, It may be the man who's mentioned back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You may recall about a year ago when we went through that passage. Talked about a man who was actually sleeping with his stepmother. Having sexual relations with her and refused to repent of that. And so Paul addresses that. But whatever it was, we don't know if that was dealt with and something else came up, another sexual issue or something else. We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul heard about a situation where they were allowing sin to exist and they weren't dealing with this particular man. And so Paul wrote a severe letter, he calls it, a letter confronting them saying, you need to deal with this. Well, apparently they did. They confronted him. They went through the process one-on-one, two-on-one, told it to the church. And at that level, he repented. It worked he responded to that and had admitted, yes, I'm a sinner and I need to change. I need to deal with this. Now we may ask, why does God want us to go through this process? To take sin seriously, to, in the community of Jesus Christ, really help each other root out those areas of sin if we're not willing to deal with them and be confronted about those. Well, because... It's part of God's process of reconciliation and redemption like it worked in this man's life. God wants us to come back to the community and be forgiven and experience his life. But if we hold on to sin and won't let it go, then then we need to experience a taste of hell. And that's really what this whole process does. It means you are put out of the community and don't experience community. And what is hell? It's separation from God and from his people. And so it's an earthly taste of that, hoping that will draw the person back to repentance. Now, in Corinth, it was a very small church. Paul had just recently established it. There were maybe a few little house churches, but it was a small community of, of believers. And so to be put out of that community meant you had nowhere to go. It's harder today for us, isn't it? Because if we go through that process and say, no, you can't be part of our community until you repent. We, we want you back, but, but you need to recognize your sin. Many people just say, fine, I'll just go to another church. It loses some of its power, and yet it's still something that we believe we're called to go through with people who are unrepentant. So this man, it says, responded. Verse 6, it's, Paul writes, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was afflicted by the majority. The punishment there, the, the word really doesn't mean punishment as much as a public declaration, bringing the person, person's name before the body and saying, here's his situation. It's a word for a formal public event that the majority, the, the church as a whole, had participated in. But Paul says, hey, it was sufficient, it was effective, it worked. The guy responded, and he's excited about that. That what God had designed to bring repentance had worked. All this is to say that we, as a community of Jesus Christ, are called to take sin seriously. Sin corrupts. And an unrepentant sinner among us who is blatantly flaunting their sin before God, shaking their fist at God and saying, no, I will do what I will do. It's like a cancer in the body. It harms the body and so we are called to take it seriously. But notice very clear, and I want to say this, we're never called to judge the world. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he's dealing with that other man. He says, "He says, hey, we are not to judge the world. We cannot hold the world up to Christian standards. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. But we are called to grow in righteousness together and help each other in our struggle to become more like Christ so we can only deal with one another. We, we can't deal with the world. That, we need to share Christ with the world so that they can come to know Him and He can begin a process of transformation in their lives. So the goal of all this is reconciliation. It's always restoration. So what happens if the person does, like this man at Corinth, come to a place of saying, okay, you're right. This is sin. I want to learn to let it go. Maybe they haven't done it very well yet, but they want to let it go. They're repentant. What are we called to do? Well, it's very clear in the passage. (laughs) In a word, forgive. We are to forgive. We are to be like the father with the prodigal son, running to greet the person and bring them home and throw a party of forgiveness. But what is forgiveness? This passage is about forgiveness. What is forgiveness? I think it's often misunderstood. Sometimes we think to forgive someone means to pretend like whatever they did to harm us didn't happen. I'll just pretend like it didn't happen. Well, that's not real forgiveness, I don't believe, biblically. I think a simple way to understand forgiveness is it's releasing the person of the debt that they have incurred through what they've done. It's releasing the person of the debt. Tim Keller in one of his recent books describes it this way, that forgiveness is like if somebody walks into your house and knocks over a $100 lamp, breaks it. To forgive the person means... You say, that's okay, you don't have to pay for it. You've released them of that debt. And you absorb that debt yourself. You say, I'll pay for it myself. I will absorb that debt myself. It's the same with moral issues. To forgive means to say, no, I won't make you pay. I won't make you continue to live in guilt and shame. I will release you of that, absorbing some of the cost In myself. And Tim Keller goes on to say it's the only way to right the wrong is for someone to forgive. Someone to forgive. Dan Allender describes forgiveness this way three steps. I think this has been helpful to me as I think about my own struggle at times with forgiving those who have harmed me. Number one, release the debt. Do not demand repayment, let go of payback. Number two, to long for reconciliation. In other words, you're saying, you don't really know that you've forgiven until you really do long for reconciliation with the person. Now, it may not be possible, but to long for it means you've, you've let go of it in your own heart. And then third, to pursue love however way you can. You may not be able to, but if there's a possibility, you pursue a way to reach out to the person with God's love. But as you think about forgiveness and how powerful it is, one thing I'm struck by is it's not humanly possible. (laughs) Real forgiveness isn't something humans are good at. We want to hold a grudge. We want to hang on to resentment because it empowers us and gives us strength and power over the other person. To forgive means to relinquish all that and absorb the cost ourselves. So real forgiveness is something only God can do, which is well stated by that famous quote by Alexander Pope where he said, To err is human. To forgive, divine. (laughs) To forgive is divine. It is something that is something God does very well and we don't do so well, but as we depend on Him, we're able to forgive others and realize that forgiveness doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt sometimes when you think about what the other person did. Corrie Ten Boom puts it this way. She was in the Holocaust. She was, her family was killed, especially her beloved sister and father in Auschwitz and Birkenwald. And she said this, forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. As you think about what the person did, it may bring up hard feelings, but that doesn't mean you haven't forgiven if you've truly released the payback and longed for restoration. Corey Ten Boom experienced that very thing as she went around speaking about forgiveness and what God had done in her heart as she had learned to forgive those Nazis who had destroyed her family. One day she was speaking about forgiveness. You may have heard this story. And suddenly walking up the aisle was someone she recognized, one of her Nazi guards. She realized right then she had a choice. Am I, Do I really mean what I'm saying? Can I really choose to forgive this man who caused such... Damage to me and my family. But she was able to make that choice. Even though the feelings were difficult, she was able to reach out and embrace him and offer true forgiveness. That's forgiveness. So this passage, I think, gives us six results of forgiveness, which reminds us of the power of forgiveness, how important it is for us as believers. Number one, Verse 7, forgiveness blesses the forgiven person. It blesses the forgiven person. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. What he's describing there is that the person, though they may have experienced forgiveness from God as they've confessed it to him, yet by what he's experiencing in the body of Christ is this excessive sorrow, the grief, the shame, the the weight of the damage he's done to others in the body of Christ. And what forgiveness does is it takes that burden off that forgiven person. It allows it to be shared among the rest of us as we extend forgiveness. It's a wonderful gift to the person who is forgiven and it restores that person who, who sin has broken the fellowship, but it restores them to the fellowship of the body, which again is a marvelous gift and one we need to offer to one another over and over and over again. So Paul says, do it, forgive this man because he has repented and it's time to welcome him back. Forgiveness blesses the forgiven. Secondly, forgiveness Bonds us in love. Verse 8. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. The word for reaffirm there is a statement. It's a legal term that is used of a public ceremony. Making a legal public declaration. Standing before the body and saying we are welcoming this person back. He is forgiven. Therefore we are to love and be bonded together in love. Sin breaks fellowship. Forgiveness restores fellowship. It restores that bond that makes us one and releases the life of Christ through that forgiveness as we reaffirm our love for the other person. In fact, as Henry Nouwen says, forgiveness really is the expression of our community that needs to be part of our everyday life together. He says this, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all people love poorly. None of us love well. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family and that is the Christian family. You see, because I sin against you regularly, I don't love God perfectly, I don't love you perfectly, and you don't love me perfectly, then we need to be a community where forgiveness is extended constantly to one another. That should be the basis of our life together. Why is it so basic? Well, because it's the basis for our relationship with God, right? We have a relationship with Him because... He's forgiven us. Way back in Jeremiah chapter 31, as he describes this new covenant, this new relationship that we've been offered through Jesus Christ, it's prophesied in Jeremiah 31. He says, I'm giving you a whole new relationship, and it's based on forgiveness. And we get to the New Testament, we realize forgiveness is the basis of our relationship with God every moment. In fact, Matthew is a very powerful, interesting passage in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount after the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says this. In the Lord's Prayer, remember, he says, uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then in verse 14, right after the prayer, he says this, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whoa. (laughs) Is that legalism? Jesus is saying, I don't think so. I don't think he's saying, we don't get forgiven by God unless we forgive others. That's a prerequisite. No, I think he's saying, if you've truly understood God's forgiveness of you and the incredible debt we owe him, we deserve hell, and yet he's forgiven us and given us life, then there's no way we can withhold forgiveness from others over the long haul. It doesn't mean we don't struggle forgive, but there's no way we can continue to hold on to it and not forgive. There's been times people have come to me and said, well, what he did to me is so bad, I can never forgive him. And I have said in that situation, well, oh, so you're telling me you're not a believer. And they're, of course, always affronted by that. But, but I say, well, I would take them to that passage in Matthew and say, well, it says there that if you are a believer, then you have to forgive and you will forgive. And it doesn't mean it's, uh, it's not a struggle. It is a struggle. But they're tied together. That's who we are in Christ. We are forgiven people who extend forgiveness to one another. There's an old bumper sticker that I haven't seen for a while, but used to be real common. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. <laughs> now, I realize people could take that for an excuse to do whatever they want because, hey, I'm forgiven. And some people have taken it that way. But, but there's a lot of truth to that bumper sticker. And that is that we don't have it together, then the basis of our relationship with God is not that we, we do it all right, because we don't. The basis for our relationship with God and with one another, the community being part of the church, is that we're forgiven. We don't deserve forgiveness, but we've received it. And we live in that forgiveness every day. And so forgiveness bonds us together as we learn to extend that forgiveness To one another. Third result of forgiveness is that forgiveness proves our obedience. It proves our obedience. Verse 9, Paul says, For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. To, To be put to the test, the word there that's used by Paul is the Greek word dokime. Dokime. It means to be approved to be tested. It used to be when the potters in ancient Greece would make a pot, they'd put it through the fire, and if it had a crack in it or something, then they would use it for something else or they would get rid of it. But if it came through the fire and was whole and complete, then they would stamp this word on the bottom of it, dokime, approved, tested. And Paul says, these tests of forgiveness with one another are tests of our character. They test whether we truly are of the Lord and if, whether we're willing to forgive because Christ in us will always lead us to forgiveness. Many of you remember the story that happened on October 2nd, the terrible event of 2006 when Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse lined up, chased away some of the kids and adults, lined up the little girls at the front of the school room, shot ten of them, killed five. The others were terribly wounded and then turned the gun on himself. And, of course, the amazing thing to the media in all that was how quickly the Amish forgave, how quickly they were willing to say, we forgive you and we forgive your family, and we will not hold it against you. Marie Roberts, Charles, the shooter's wife, wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, their grace, and their mercy. She wrote, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. See, that's the power of forgiveness. It changes lives. It releases and it allows the love of Christ to begin to permeate our world. And in their case, it certainly proved their obedience. It proved their hearts. It proved their character as the Amish were willing to quickly... Forgive, despite the horrible things they'd experienced. Forgiveness is hard for all of us. It's a work of God. But we're called to forgive and it proves our character by how we respond to those who harm us. Fourth, forgiveness blesses the forgiver, the one who forgives. Paul says in verse 10, The one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I've forgiven... If I've forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. It was for their sakes for Paul to forgive and to lead them in forgiveness and for them to forgive this man who had sinned against them. You see, forgiveness frees us from resentment. Resentment will eat away at us. As I've quoted a number of times before, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Think of the foolishness of that, and yet we do that when we hang on to resentment. It, we drink it in, and then we just hope the other person will die, and yet it eats away at our souls. Our inner life is destroyed, and that bitterness eats away at our lives. Just this morning in streams in the desert, the devotional for today... A.B. Simpson says this, Some people get easily turned aside from the grandeur of their life work by pursuing their own grievances and enemies until their life gets turned into one little petty whirl of warfare. It's like a nest of hornets. You may disperse the hornets, but you will probably get terribly stung and get nothing for your pains, for even their honey is not worth a search. Stephen and Annie Chapman, you may have heard some of their music. They wrote a song called The Brother-Sister Song. It's a true story about a family where the father was an alcoholic and was very abusive, especially to the boy. But the song relates later in life how their two lives went very differently, the brother and the sister. And the chorus goes this way. He lives in peace up in Ohio. She was bitter till the day she died. A bitter heart is why she died. You see, he was able to forgive the harm that his father had done, but the sister never was. And so, it's so important we learn to forgive. Forgiveness helps us. It blesses the forgiver and sets us free. Fifth, verse 10, forgiveness honors Christ. Paul ends that section that we do all this forgiveness in the presence of Christ. He uses a phrase there, literally in the face of Christ. I think Paul is picturing Jesus looking on this whole situation that's happening in the church in Corinth. And he's saying, imagine Christ there in in His presence we forgive. Why? Because He's forgiving. It honors Him when we respond to Him. And because He has forgiven us a million things, all the things we've done our whole lives against Him. He's forgiven us through the cross. How can I hold on to this one or two or three, maybe several things that this one person has done against me? If Christ has forgiven me all that, how can I not let go and forgive what this person has done to me? See, Christ is honored when we imitate Him when we act like he does in the world and are willing to forgive a repentant sinner. His kingdom is expanded when we act like him, when we forgive those who repent. Finally, last, number six, forgiveness binds Satan. Verse 11, So that, make sure you forgive, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Satan really wants to destroy the body of Christ, he wants to destroy our fellowship. And in this area of handling sin and and either an unrepentant sinner or a repentant sinner, Satan would like nothing more than to destroy us. And he can do that a couple of ways. One is if we ignore sin. If we act like we don't care, if we just kind of turn a blind eye when we see a brother who's really caught in sin and struggling or a sister and we just ignore it and think, well, God will deal with them and it causes harm to the body and Satan gets a foothold through that sin that is like a cancer that destroys the body. But it's also a foothold if someone repents and says, I'm struggling, I need help and we refuse to forgive and welcome them back. No, you're not measuring up. I don't know if you've really repented. I don't know. You haven't changed your life yet. You better get your act together and then we'll welcome you back. See, when we have that attitude, Satan gets a foothold and divides us and causes destruction in our fellowship. But true forgiveness of a repentant sinner... It's like punching Satan in the face. (laughs) It it knocks him out. It keeps him from being able to destroy our family, our fellowship together. I, I could give several examples in our church. We have struggled with situations like this, but one that stands out to me is a few years ago, a woman in our body chose to betray her marriage, betray her husband, betray her family, had an affair... When confronted about it one-on-one, she refused to give it up. Two-on-one, she refused to give it up. We finally had to tell it to the church body. And when we did that, it was difficult, but she still refused to repent. She left, left her husband, divorced him, went and married someone else. A couple of years later, she came back. And she contacted me, contacted the Board of Elders, and said, you know what, I was wrong. And it was sin. And I want to work this out. What, What do we need to do? We listened to her story. We forgave her as a Board of Elders, and then we threw a party. I mean, literally, we threw a church party. After church, we invited her, we invited whoever wanted to come. We got a big cake, welcome home with her name on it. And we welcomed her home. You see, that's what we're called to do as the body of Christ. She doesn't go to church here now. she's chosen with her new husband to go to another church, but she is welcome here anytime she wants to come, because she's one of us. You see, that's the power of forgiveness. It brings unity, it brings life, it brings health. It. it Punches Satan in the face and it allows the life of Christ to be released among us. It does amazing things both in our body and in the spiritual world, the universe as well. So as we close, I just want to take a moment and give you an opportunity to just pray silently before the Lord and maybe the Lord's speaking to you about someone that it's been hard for you to forgive and he's calling you to bring before him and wrestle with forgiving that person and then I'll close in a few moments thank you Heavenly Father that you in your amazing grace have extended forgiveness to us. And all you ask is that we admit we need it. Thank you that you've forgiven such a huge debt that we've incurred against you through the cross. And that that's what bonds us together. We are a forgiven people dwelling together, learning to extend forgiveness to one another. Help us, Lord, to be not only a forgiven people, but a forgiving people to extend your love and forgiveness to one another in a way that sets us and others free and that strengthens our bonds of love with one another. May we forgive as we've been forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.